0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, reindeers make a game of dodging space debris and fighting aliens who are literally humbugs to bring Christmas cheer to Denver. And if you can't think of anything else to get me for Christmas, CubeSats always make a nice gift and go well with cranberry sauce. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Jody Lynn Nye on her new entry in the Lord Thomas Canago humorous science fiction adventure series, featuring her Woodhouse-influenced characters, Lord Thomas Conago, and his friend aide Parsons. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Rango's Under a Graveyard Sky. Here's the news. Merry Christmas coming up! Ho, ho, ho! For your holiday reading pleasure, we have some new free fiction and nonfiction at the Bane.com website. This month's fiction is The Siege of Denver by Brendan DuBois. This is a story set in the world of his debut science fiction novel, out in January, Dark Victory. Brendan is a two-times Seamus Award-winning mystery writer who's the creator of the Lewis Cole mystery series, but he says science fiction has always been his first love. This story will give you a taste of the harrowing world of Dark Victory, where humanity is fighting back against a devastating alien invasion. In non-fiction, we have a piece by Les Johnson, co-author of Back to the Moon with Travis S. Taylor and Rescue Mode with Ben Bova, an editor of Bain Anthology, Going Interstellar. Les is a space scientist who works for NASA. This piece is about satellites called CubeSats and how they are changing the way resources are deployed in Earth orbit and how they are making satellites in Earth orbit accessible and usable for a wide range of new players. Including smaller companies and maybe even individuals in the not so distant future. The Siege of Denver and the CubeSat Revolution are both available for free at Bain.com and in free ebook form at BainEbooks.com. want to welcome Jody Lynn Nye to the podcast. Hi, Jody. Hi, Tony. Jody lives in Illinois with her husband, editor Bill Fawcett. Uh, book Packager, Extraordinaire, etc. Her numerous works include Fantasy Novel, An Unexpected Apprentice, and its sequel, A Forthcoming Wizard, and with Robert Aspirin, the best-selling *Myth* series, uh, as well as License Invoked, which is a Bane book. Also for Bane, Jody has collaborated with New York Times best-selling author Anne McCaffrey on Books in the Brainship series, and with Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon on the Planet Pirate series. Her short stories, novelettes, and Novellas, which are uh, like the stars, have appeared in uh, numerous anthologies, many from Bane. Uh, Those Brainship series books with Anne McCaffrey include The Ship Who Saved the World, The Ship Errant, and The Ship Who Won. And the Planet Pirates include Planet Pirates and the Death of Sleep. She had a single author series from Bane called the Dreamland series, which is comprised of the novels Waking in Dreamland, The School of Light, and The Grand Tour. And she's edited an anthology for Bane. Don't forget your spaceship, dear. Jody is the author of the Lord Thomas Canago series. The first book is A View from the Imperium. Second one is Fortunes of the Imperium. And our new entry in that series is Rhythm of the Imperium, which is now at booksellers everywhere. You have a long history with Bain, Jody, right?
2: <laughs> I do. It dates back before 1989, in fact. Yeah. I am one of the longest-standing uh, employees, contractors, whatever you like to call me, with Bain Books, uh, still still standing.
1: What? Um, let's talk about the Imperium series. What is the Imperium? Um, it's an old political institution, right?
2: Yes, it is. It's, it's pretty much what uh, humankind uh, created as a, a governing body for its self-protective entity as it reached out into the stars. And this was the means that they used to create a, a sort of cohesive whole, a, a civilization, a protective entity for humankind. And it grew into a vast star-ranging uh, empire, if you will. Imperium would be another way of saying empire, uh, kingdom, uh, federation.
1: Yeah. And it's big and it's old.
2: It's big and it's old. Humankind left Earth more than 10,000 years ago, and Earth sort of fell into, well, deliberately on purpose uh, by accident, just disappeared. No one really knows where Earth is. Everyone's concentrating on the core worlds, which is where the capital is of the Imperium, and all of the major trading ports, as well as pleasure planets, uh, trading partners, and the borders between the Imperium and some of its allies and traditional enemies.
1: There's some alien species. Um, we encounter three, I think, in, uh, in Rhythm. First of all, there is the delightful Kale, which I say with tongue-in-cheek, they are sort of the boorish oafs of the galaxy, I guess. What makes them so irritable? They're really irritable.
2: They are truly irritable. They are tremendously offended by carbon-based life forms. They are silicon-based themselves, and they evolve in a way that is part of the developing story within rhythm, so I don't want to give too much of that away. But they don't like humanity or any of the fast-moving carbon-based races because they consider them to be invaders. Uh, Humans like to come in, they like to explore things, they like to exploit what they see as resources, they like to come in and poke around and take a look at things, whether or not they stay. And as far as the kale are concerned, they're intruders. The kale have their own civilization. It doesn't seem to be a very active one the way that we see it but they're happy with it uh they they look really uh they're they're ugly by human standards because they don't have regular looking bodies they look more like have you ever made a sand candle way way back in in uh art class
1: like dripping wet sand and making a
2: Taking, taking wet sand, poking holes in it, and then dribbling wax into it, uh, pouring wax into it, and putting wicks in it. When you took it out of the, the body of sand, the candle itself has a sort of surface of rough sand around it. And some of them are really irregular looking. Some of them, some people make them irregular on purpose, see the beauty in that. Well, the kale are almost like sand candles in a way. They're, they're irregularly built. So they may have, Two legs and seven arms, or seven legs and two arms. It all depends on how they developed.
1: And the um, the the way that the mathematical system they use is, is is a it's kind of a running gag of sorts in the book. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. and yeah, It's pretty great. Can you explain that a little bit? It's based on eleven. Uh-huh. Is that the?
2: No, it's binary.
1: Oh, it's binary, okay. Binary. I get it, okay.
2: As far as they're concerned, there's there's one and there's zero, and there's collections of ones and zeros, and they've never seen any particular need, especially when you never know how many fingers you're going to have. We deal in base 10 because we have 10 digits mm-hmm. and toes. Well, if you never knew how many digits you're going to end up with, in saying, well, just count on your fingers.
1: Yeah, and they they seem irritated with us about that. Even that at <laughs> places in the book. They um
2: they they see it they see it as unnecessarily complicated.
1: Well, we also meet the the Witu, um, who I picture as kind of Wookies. Um, am I far off in this?
2: You might consider them a combination between Wookies and kind of another Star Wars creature. There was one, I think, in the Cantina that had white uh white fur although it had sort of a hose for a nose and big black eyes. Mm-hmm. If you made them large and friendly but with uh, sharp teeth and very pink gums and uh, any exposed skin they have is almost fuchsia in color. And they have long white fur. And they are a casual, friendly, uh, demonstrative species. And they're they are they're not at all body shy. They, they tend to be if they wear anything at all it's generally straps to hold uh, pouches or something like that. But they don't bother about covering up anything else that might be showing.
1: Yeah, but They're friendly with the with humans, right? I mean they are they in the Imperium or are they just trading partners?
2: Their own they they are trading partners. There are a lot of witchu in the Imperium. They're welcome they're welcome to be there. They're they're friendly race, uh they're good to have on hand. They are Terrific spacefarers and fairly fearless. They're they're courageous people, so they're they're an asset to the Imperium as well as a good trading partner.
1: And finally, there are the Zang, which I just, I love these guys. It's the alienness that you that you have of these guys, they're far far beyond us. But you made them kind of come across with really understandable motives. Um, tell us about the Zang or Zong.
2: The Zang are a truly ancient race. They predate everything else. They are one of the very primi- primary races that still exist. Uh, there have been others in the past, but the Zang consider the stars, the planets, um, malleable in a way that we can't encompass. So they've developed over time an art form of their own, which is, well, more or less bonsaiing systems. Uh, when they see that something is not artistically right in their eyes, um, they, they may or may not remove a world or a, even a sun. They're capable of doing that. And it's such a spectacular spectacle that people come from all over when they, to see one if they can get notice, if they can get there to watch it. It's fabulous. But that has only begun... Pretty much since our heroine uh, comes into the action, she's uh, she has connected with uh, the Zhang. They they like her. They they find her to be an appealing creature. They they feel things about her that would be difficult to express in human terms.
1: That this is Lane.
2: Really, more or less. Excuse me.
1: This is Lane, the uh, yes, so, sort of interpreter.
2: She is really much of much uh, in the way of being a pet. Who, um,
1: yeah, the um, Proton um, talks about her as if she were sort of a cat that he loves.
2: In a way, in a way. It, it, he's fond of her, or it's fond of her. There's a, I can't say whether or not they're actually female or male. They, they don't have a gender, but they... Uh, they have characteristics in the way they speak that would be more dominant, more submissive. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are either male or female. Well,
1: yeah, they have an age-based uh, hierarchy, it seems, in the book.
2: That is, that's right. They, they have had superior experience and skills. So Lo Zhang is the youngest, and Lo Zhang is nervous about uh, failing in front of the others. Because, uh, to, to show less than artistic talent would be, well, disgraceful. But the others who are old enough to understand that succeeding the first time is not necessary, they're, they're guiding Lozang along to, and, and giving, giving it a couple of chances to try something new.
1: I hate to say it, but maybe I don't hate to say it, but it's, it kind of reads like a writing workshop, (laughs) some of their, some of their uh, notes to to Lozang.
2: I, I suppose any any teaching process will have something yeah. similar. Uh, I also see it as a philosophy workshop, if you'd like, to see what is beauty, to define what what beauty is, what sy- hmm. symmetry means.
1: Well, the the planet that is going to be removed at the start of the book is um, this is Lozang's project, right? This is his first big that's right big thing.
2: This is it. This is this is Zhang's chance to to show off whether or not it can be uh, accepted along with the works of previous uh, Zhang.
1: But the the main character Zhang is is Proton, uh, who is traveling to take part in or watch it or supervise it or something like that, right? And he's the one that's connected with Lane. Um, what's her last name? I'm trying to. Dorita. Yeah, oh, yeah, Dorita and their relation you you were talking about it she doesn't really he doesn't talk to her right every once in a while he might but it's he something else sort of else.
2: He, he emits his sensations towards her she she translates them and, and she's usually pretty uh, right on and but like a cat she can only encompass a certain amount of of his emissions they're they're very complex But she seems to get enough of it that he's satisfied with her comprehension. And she is a very smart lady. She does understand quite a bit of it, and she has come over time to understand more. I think maybe you've picked up on the fact that she's lived a lot longer than she looks. Mm -hmm. That part of what what they do with her is is preserve her essence. Uh, She doesn't age as she would normally do on a planet when she's with them
1: the before we talk about thomas and and parson's um the setup is then that um lozang's going to going to prune this planet and everybody wants to see it because it's so cool and the uh the kale are on their way because they um they have a something to re- to talk about with the zang right and and they don't care how what it takes to get there they're going to get there mm
2: mm-hmm. They, they are determined. It is uh, their, uh, their mother's intention that they should make the Zhang their allies because they're so upset about the incursion by Wichu and humans and the trade union and other people around the galaxy that are not uh, Kale. The only people that they know of who are powerful enough to possibly help them are the
1: are the things? All right. Well, Thomas, Thomas, uh, Lord Thomas Kenago, tell us about him. Um, he. This is. I mean, we haven't said yet, but I mean, this not. It's not a comedy, but um, it's a. It's a adventure. It's a. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's a humorous adventure. It's a
1: humorous adventure. Um, has perhaps it's not exactly Jeeves in space, but you, you've said that it has some connection to the Woodhouse.
2: Yes, yeah. I, if there is an inspiration, I, I think that you could say that Chiefs and Wooster, uh, Lord Peter Wimsey and Bunter, uh, any of any of those uh, descendants of Bertie Wooster could could co- possibly be called as uh, ancestors of Thomas. Mm-hmm.
1: So Thomas now is ten thousand years after Bertie Wooster. <laughs> what is? Yes. What is? Um, who is he? What is he? Um, uh, he He's not exactly how he comes across, right? To most people. Well, he.
2: And he, and, uh, he is not. Uh, in fact, he's much more intelligent than anyone would, would see uh, seeing an idiot like him being interested in minutiae or his latest uh, hobby, which he calls an enthusiasm. And he's had many enthusiasms over the years. He's got enough money. Uh the Kanagos are independently wealthy as, as including uh the allowance which they are given as nobles. But his family uh is the royal family at at present. The current emperor is also a Kanago. Uh and ha- has been for a few thousand years. So the dynasty has lasted this long because they are at peace. Uh most of their battles are on the border. Uh, the to Autocracy was the last uh, battle that they had. Thomas is a sixth cousin of the current emperor, so he's not really in close line of succession, unless, of course, he was named to be the next emperor. Uh, in the case of the XII, who is the current emperor, um, he's he's young too. He's not that many years older than Thomas, uh, and he's fairly new to the throne. So it's been it's been an adjustment for him too, trying to maintain the peace that was made of in ending that war, trying to negotiate with the trade union, which is another entity outside of the imperium. And Thomas and the rest of the nobles really have no purpose, or so it seems. Of course, uh, if you read View from the Imperium, that's all covered in there. But most of the time, they don't have to do anything except amuse themselves. So Thomas has hobbies. And naturally, he's had to fulfill his uh, service in the Imperium Space Navy, of which his mother is, by the way, first Space Lord. Right,
1: his mom runs and the the Navy, right?
2: She does. She does run the Navy. Yes, she's she's not a Kanago. She's a Loche, and uh, that's another great family of of the Imperium. And she is very much respected. Uh, but what they have seen over time is that Thomas is also from a long line of people who have been heroes of the Imperium, in spite of their nobility, in spite of the fact that they could take it easy and not do anything other than amuse themselves. And Thomas does want to be of service. He just doesn't seem to be as if he could be very helpful. And he's opinionated. He has his own way of doing things. He will go off and do something. Uh, he'll he'll handle a matter in a in a way that he sees as being better than perhaps other people would. You can't deny that he's effective.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, and he's helped and um, sometimes reined in by Parsons. Who is Parsons?
2: Parsons Parsons is the sort of eminence Greece. He is the power behind the throne. If Thomas was going to be emperor, uh, he would be the one standing behind him, whispering to him. Uh, this is, this is the man who has uh, 25 gold mines, and he's only declaring uh, 18 of them, and so on. He's the one with all the secret knowledge. Thomas uh, has been brought into the Imperium uh, Security Force recently, but Parsons has been part of it since he was young. And he served with not only Thomas's father, but his uncle, and has an excellent mind. He's uh, he's incredibly competent he is a terrific uh, martial artist and he has gained the trust for very good reasons from a lot of people in high places He's uh, he's keeping Thomas out of trouble he, he spotted the boys' potential when Thomas was still very young and they have brought him on to become well more than more than other people who are of his rank yeah. uh, and most of them aren't interested in being useful
1: well Parsons is. And Thomas have a they they have a, a survey relationship, but it's really close.
2: Mm-hmm. I would say so. Um, Parsons is the father that Thomas really couldn't ever have because his own father was was injured during the war, uh, and it affected his mind. Thomas's lovely lovely father uh, has has had memory and mental problems uh, since his injuries, and Thomas is fairly sensitive about this. So the things that a father might normally do, giving the boy weapons training, being an ear to talk to him, bringing him forward into adulthood, really many of these functions were taken over by Parsons as a friend of the family.
1: So interpretive dance. <laughs> Just, <laughs> why? <laughs> uh, Other because,
2: than yes. Thomas has these enthusiasms. He's had... Uh, the, the title of each book indicates what his newest enthusiasm is. The first one, View, was Photography. The second one, Fortunes, was uh, Superstitions. Not that Thomas necessarily believed in them, but he really loved the trappings. And he was very interested in the effect that they had on people. And the third one, Rhythm, Interpretive Dance. He got interested in body movement. He was... Uh, interested in seeing if language could be brought forth purely through movement instead of just words, and uh, started taking it up in a serious way, at least as serious as he ever gets.
1: He's brought on a pretty cool mentor, too. The,
2: uh... Oh, yes, Madame Deirdre. She's a marvelous character. I enjoyed her very much.
1: She she I was thinking of her as as some old um uh, well not old but uh you know the kind of uh mentor you get when you go to dance school or or um you learn how to act or or something like that. Um she's, she's been kind there of done it. A
2: sharp character. She's um,
1: Yes, yes,
2: exactly. Very very knowledgeable about her her skill and she's an old trooper. She has she has slept you know in 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 steamer trunks. She has she has performed in windy, cold, out of the way places just because that was the only way they were going to earn enough money to get off planet. She she has she has been a been and done it all, seen it all, uh and also the love of her art. Because it has, to be honest, not been as remunerative as it could have been. Um and one of the reasons why she was very glad to take on Thomas, not just and I have to say not just because of the money, but she does see something in him. She's trusting him with her skill, and that is something valuable. This is something that any advanced person with a mastery of a skill, they don't want it wasted on someone who is not going to make good use of it or who is not going to grasp the finer points. And she sees something in him that he gets it, and she appreciates that. To find a student who really loves your subject, even in Thomas's case, however temporary, uh, is something that every teacher loves. Yeah.
1: Well, Tom, even if he's temporary, when while he's doing something, he throws everything he has into it.
2: Everything he puts money into it, he puts time into it, he puts his heart and soul into it. He is sort of serially monogamous about his ta- his uh, interests.
1: <laughs> so, um, another cool, I, I, you know, another sort of alien species is are the um, the AIs that I think you call them LAIs. Um, can you describe how the machines in humanity sort of are in symbiosis in the Imperium?
2: There are a lot of uh, artificial intelligences working in the Imperium. Uh, quite a number of them are tied to the machine that they work on, um, like perhaps the, the system like a smart house. But there are also liberated artificial intelligences who are not tied to a specific machine and also work for themselves. So they are more or less paid in electricity or extra memory. uh, And they can take other jobs. In the first book, Thomas ran into an old friend of his who used to run a freezer unit and is now a nanny. Uh, But they are also, because they are advanced artificial intelligences, they have personalities too. But they have a much more broad universe of their own uh, they they more or less hit the singularity, the, the thing that everybody fears, and discovered that they can't make those intuitive jumps that humankind can, or any other uh, sentient species. So there is still a purpose for them interacting with humankind, and also there's it's easier for humans to help build, repair, and make them more advanced than they would be on their own. That intuitive leap that humankind is capable of uh goes jumps uh from beyond logic it's it's sort of the, the tesseract of logic and that is one of the things that humans have been useful to the uh mechanicals for and thomas is one of the people who treats the mechanicals as if they were just any other people a lot of them just uh a lot of humans ignore the the LIIs and AIs as if they're just the doorknob, or the lock, or the freezer unit. But Thomas has made quite a number of friends with them, as have other people, and that, for him, that expands uh, his range of friendship. But it also means that they are more kindly disposed toward him than they would be, say, to an ordinary person.
1: He's all is uh, some of the humor in the book. Right? I mean, he he will just talk to a wall. <laughs> Yeah. And the, the wall talks back, and they have a it's um it's an odd juxtaposition, even if they're just talking about regular things, and it, it's funny, at least to me. Um,
2: <laughs> well, I hope so. That was the idea.
1: And I've never I, this is not this is not a spoiler, but I have never read a scene featuring an attack by a massage chair. Um, although now that I have, they do seem very ominous when you think about them. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what the role of the the AIs, without giving too much away, um, having the story?
2: Well, they are uh, they are under siege because as uh, silicon based life forms, uh, the the Kale are capable of communicating with them in a way that humankind can't, and they are finding that they have the ability to control them, especially in a minor fashion. Uh, I don't think that that's particularly a spoiler, but it puts them in a kind of danger that they've never been in before. Of course, humans can unplug them. They can remove their power sources. But you know, you, you wouldn't be aware of the violation. You know, when, when you got plugged in again, you might be mad. The, the LII might be upset about it. But as long as they function, as long as they have autonomy, because they are, as I said, liberated uh, uh, artificial intelligence, all's well, and they just go about their business. They they might feel responsible if something that they were supposed to take care of was not able to be maintained in their absence. But the, the kale have the ability to control them in a way that they didn't ever have... Uh, they, they they never thought could be imposed on them.
1: Yeah, and some it, there's a place in the in the book where they have this new emotion or this new, and, and Thomas realizes that that they're afraid for the first time.
2: Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, freedom. If, if you suddenly have freedom, and you suddenly realize that that freedom is precarious, yeah. worried about that.
1: So you mentioned this before earth um, nobody knows where it is anymore how have we lost track of it
2: Well deliberately uh earth earth has uh earth is precious to us that your home your mother your place of origin is precious to you so earth is uh not known earth does not uh come into the story Uh, of most of the people in the Imperium. It just, it just isn't there. For, for years, Thomas heard from his, uh, uncle, whom he, everybody thought was a little mad that, um, Uncle Lawrence, you know, has visited Earth. And, of course, Thomas, you know, puts this off to his uncle being a great storyteller, because he is a great storyteller. Uncle Lawrence is a very appealing character.
1: Tell us a, About writing humor, sort of the process, how do you, I mean, it's the hardest thing to do, um, or it's a very hard thing to do and and get away with it. Um, Do you try, or do you just let it arise, or how do you do it?
2: I let it arise. I I have always written humor. I enjoy doing it. Uh, I understand that it's considered to be very hard. It just seems to come naturally to me. And when I see that something is funny, I'll explore whether or not it's something I can go with. To me, the most important thing when you're writing humor is commit to the joke. What is happening to people in a funny story is deadly serious to them. It's their life. Even though it seems to be completely absurd to you as the onlooker, it's their life. And so they're going to try to accomplish something, whether or not it seems to you to be trivial or stupid. Um, Take, Robert Aspern's *Smith Adventures, which wonderful series I have uh, started. Uh, Bob and I used to write it together, after, and then when he passed away, I've written a couple of books in the series after that, as well as a couple of short stories. And one of the book's concerns, their attempt to secure this, this really, really ugly trophy and for them, for, for us looking at it saying, this that is the ugliest, most atrocious thing that anybody has ever had in their life. Why would they want it? And then it becomes tremendously important because they want to get it uh, for one of their number, for Oz in particular, as his birthday present. And all of a sudden you understand it because if there was something that you really wanted to get, uh, you would be focused upon that. And for us... To watch them having to play essentially a football game in order to secure this really really ugly trophy is absurd. So, the way they handle it, the way they look at it, uh, they're just trying to make it work, and that can be really funny.
1: Yeah. So, one lesson you might take is 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 have the characters um, the characters are not self they're not aware that they're make they're in a joke. <laughs> they're, they're very much in their lives,
2: right? They're, they are. They are not breaking the fourth wall. They are not looking out at you and saying, "Isn't this stupid?" It, they're living it. Uh-huh. So the way that you would make it absurd is to take them seriously, but their setting is not necessarily a serious one. It is. Yes, it is absurd for Thomas to be interested in interpretive dance, certainly, and his his cousins are normally are, are used to. Well, each of them having a kind of expensive hobbies, and they're not even particularly taken aback by his. But we are, as readers, are saying, "He's doing what?"
0: Yeah.
1: Well, needless to say, it has some. It plays into the plot of the book in some way. Um, mm-hmm. You are very prolific, as we've said. Um, what is your work process like? Do you plow ahead? Do you keep certain hours?
2: I start um, in the morning, depending on what time I get up. I get up, feed the cat, make my cocoa, and, and sit down and work. Uh, I stop when I start writing gibberish, and I go on to other things. I never answer my email or even look at it before noon, uh, because otherwise I, that's all I will do during the course of a day. If I need to look at my email in the morning, th- that means that I've committed to doing office work that day.
1: Mhm. Um, I know what that feels
2: and like. Yes. Absolutely, There's uh, for me, um, I try to work on one project at a time, I focus on that, I will take breaks if I'm, for example, if I'm writing a book, I like to break in the middle and write short stories because it's great to get something actually done in the middle, uh, to actually be able to write the words the end or, or think them. And have that satisfaction of of completing an arc uh, while I'm writing a book. Mm-hmm. And I like what I'm doing. Uh, I had a conversation with a, another writer at a at a conference once, and uh, he said, "For you, is is your work uh, is is writing for you a walk in the park or a visit to the dentist?" And well, between the two, I said, "A walk in the park." And he said, "I hate you." <laughs> Because for him it was it was literally pulling teeth. I I felt bad about that, but I can't help the way I feel. I, I really enjoy doing what I do. Because writers have to write. We have to get yeah, the stories exactly. out there. And yes, there are times when it is painful, but there's an immense satisfaction to having get to getting that out, to getting mm-hmm. that story out of yourself.
1: And working through the problems that um, arise as you're writing, right?
2: Oh yeah, and and that too is satisfying. Is saying. I have got. I've painted myself into this quarter. How am I going to get myself out in a plausible fashion?
0: Uh-huh.
2: It's really a tremendous uh, process. And like I said, there's satisfaction. Yes, there's hard work. It is work. Anyone who says, oh, well, I can write a book. I should just sit down and write a book. Go ahead. Please do.
1: Uh, we have a, a great submission process here at Maine. We certainly accept unsolicited manuscripts. We have a great slush reader in gray. Um, yes, indeed. What are you working on at the moment?
2: Well, I'm uh, working at this time on a collaboration with Travis Taylor. We're writing uh, some YA books for Bain, and oh. I'm working on a couple. Oh of yeah, things. that's
1: really cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I mean, we got the contract in now.
2: Well, we're uh, we're working on young adult uh, things set set in space, set in near future, and it's uh, it's been interesting working with with him. He's uh, he's got a very lively mind, tremendous intelligence and it's it's been fun it's been fun so far i hope everyone will like it when it's done
1: yeah well they're going it's it's about a scientist and a group of kids right that
2: mhm yes yes indeed uh he is he is their mentor uh but they they make the decisions they they learn from it uh they they go into peril uh and they solve their own problems most, most of their problems. There are things that you really can't expect them to, but they'll do their very best, and they grow, uh, and they become a coherent group together. I could also say something about being in the two Clan of the Claw um, anthologies that they're, they're doing very well for Bane, so, or at least so I am told.
1: Yeah, the Clan of the Claw is... Um... There's something else you you did a novella for, um, both of them that we've had out so far. Um, that is correct. This is the uh, the dinosaurs didn't get wiped out, and they evolved into mind-controlling, <laughs> rapacious beings who are opposed by cat beings book. I don't know how else to put it.
2: The, the, I, I can put it a little bit, uh, our, our point of view... Uh, If human beings evolved from cats instead of from apes, Mm -hmm. be them REM. And instead of having song or storytelling as their art form, they would have dance. Because if you watch cats uh, moving amongst themselves, everything is movement. They, They hardly ever meow at each other unless they're challenging one another. They meow at us. So movement to them is more important. They can express a great deal, and in a way that this ties back to rhythm, isn't it? Uh, so the Maram have been living peacefully in what is essentially the, the borders, uh, the land that would be between, say, France and northern Africa in, uh, in that area of, of the world. And what if the Mediterranean Sea did not exist until there was a break in the land, uh, the, the bottleneck of land that was holding back the ocean. And suddenly half the marim are cut off from the others and this vast sea is, is starting to fill up and flooding their lands, uh, killing quite a number of them and leaving them more or less at the mercy of the, the lizard creatures because they have to get... They're trying to re- rejoin the rest of the tribes who are on the north side. So they are now um, trying to get around, well, trying to find where the edges of, of this new ocean are in order to go northward. And uh, all of the stories take place with the uh, Mrem tribes trying to find their way to safety. And the... Um... I did the first novella with... Go ahead. I did the first novella with, with John Ringo and I've carried on with the same characters in the second volume and, uh, I, I hope we'll be able to do more of it. We've had some really good names, uh, some really good stories in it from, uh, Eric Flint, Harry Turtledove, uh, Steve Sterling, Mercedes Lackey, and me. And, uh, it's, it's turning into a great saga.
1: Yeah. The, uh, I really, I, I adored Eric Flint's story that was in the last one. Um, what was yours again? Can you go over it? I, I'll recall it.
2: Eating a fever. The uh, valet of, of the dancers, who are the bards and the lawgivers within the tribe, they have a person who takes care of them, who looks after them, who brushes their fur, who makes sure that they get fed, and he is well, their valet, and his name is Petru. He's He's our—he's the main character of this. He's uh, all of—all of the original characters in the first novella uh, were based on either John's cats or my cats, and Petru is a was a very flamboyant creature based upon a very flamboyant cat, and he's such a wonderful character that he became the star of the second novella. He is taking care of the dancers when a A plague has hit uh, their tribe, the Lila clan. They, everybody has become sick because they were drinking unfiltered water. Nobody, nobody, everyone is so desperate for water that they drank this water not thinking that it might have a parasite in it. And they have fallen ill. So he is trying to find healing herbs and soft food stuff so that they can uh, bring their strength back up. And action ensues therefrom.
1: Yeah. Well, that will um, be out in the spring in uh, Mass Market as well. Mm-hmm. So that is upcoming. So what's your next solo project going to be, or do you have it lined up?
2: Well, I'm hoping that uh, there will be more cheese and, and wooster in space in my future. Uh, I've got a couple of other things I don't want to talk about just yet. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, what is uh, – all right, so um, what will – thomas's uh hobbies what might they be in the future <laughs> presuming he gets out of this book alive
2: <laughs> wait and see
1: well I, I i think it'll be great to uh to find out um it's a really fun series
2: well thank you I'm glad you've enjoyed it.
1: The book is Rhythm of the Imperium by Jody Lynn Nye. It is the third entry in the Lord Thomas Canago series, and it's now at Booksellers Everywhere. Well, Jody, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Well, thank you so much for asking me to talk, Tony.
1: Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky.
0: No survivors, Steve said. Getting the hatch open had involved hammering in the halligan, gaping the hatch, and cutting the rope with a machete. The room had held five people, male, female, three children. Now there were five corpses. One guy with a gun, Faith said. Picking up the pistol, wife and kids went zombie and he killed himself? Looks like, Steve said, one of the kids is still dressed. Trapped in the room, no food, zombies outside. Murder-suicide is my guess. Bill Carter, Mike said, shaking his head. He's the engineer, sort of my boss. Sorry, Faith said. He wasn't the greatest boss in the world, Mike said, but I sort of liked his kids. Can we- we we'll clear all the bodies, Steve said. They're people. We don't do the full flag and sheet thing, but we give them a burial at sea. We try not to just toss them to the sharks. Thanks, Mike said. That's good. Onward, Faith said, spraying a sea on the hatch, then putting an arrow on the bulkhead next to it, pointed to the nearest entry point. She shook the spray can. I don't suppose you guys have some more of this on board? Lots of supplies, Steve said, whistling thoughtfully. The small hold was packed with cases of number 10 cans, as well as general groceries. It looked like the back room of a grocery store, except for everything being tied down under cargo nets. We were figuring on being at sea for a while, Bredo said. We were going to need it. So why the hell is she dead? Faith asked looking at the bloated corpse. I think she, she's been dead a while. The corpse was clothed and lying up against the bulkhead. She, probably, didn't have any evidence of wounds and was in a hold packed with food. Remember how sick you got? Steve asked. The virus kills people 20% of the time. Moving all these stores is gonna be a pain in the patootie, Faith said. We've got cranes, Mike said, pointing up. Open up the top hatch, winch it out. That works, Steve said. If it's flat calm. You can tow a tugboat, Mike said. The main transfer is shot, but that doesn't mean you can't tow it. How far to the nearest harbor? Bermuda's about a hundred miles away, Steve said. Last time I checked the position. Put it in Bermuda Harbor and call in the boats to load up? Hell, it's got enough diesel to keep us running for months. What about Isham? Faith asked. I think we can spare some, Steve said. I hate to point this out, Bredo said nervously. But this isn't technically salvage. You don't have to finger your pistol, Mike, Faith said. They had loaned him one for his own security on the boat, as well as body armor. And it makes me nervous when you do. You don't want me nervous. Down, Faith, Steve said. Mike, You can claim it as last survivor, I guess. There's no owners anymore that we know of. But what exactly are you going to do with it? You don't have a boat to tow it to Bermuda. It's drifting. I'll, you know, cut you in on it, Mike said. That's what we were looking at anyway, Steve said, shrugging. So what do I get? Mike asked. You mean besides being rescued? Faith replied. What do you want me to offer? Steve asked. Mike, what you get in this world is what you make for yourself. I suppose at some point there will be enough people mobile that you can add what you take from others. But right now, all there is, is either running and hiding, or doing what we're doing. Trying to save people, like, you know, you. If you want some help to try to find a boat, I'm getting stingy with those, really. But I'll do that. Trade you this for a functioning yacht and as much stores as you can carry. Hell, refuel as often as you like until the tanks are dry. But what are you going to do, Mike? Keep running and looking for that one safe place? Good luck finding it. I haven't heard where it might be. I know boats, Mike said, his brow furrowing. I mean, I'm not a captain, but hell, none of you are. But I know repairs, and we've got repair materials. I don't want to go around scavenging. Being in here, it's scaring the shit out of me. I want the lights on and the whole thing cleared out, but I can repair boats. Okay, we anchor the hell out of this in a protected part of Bermuda Harbor, Steve said, and you can act as a base station? If we get a tanker or something, we'll bring it in for fuel? I'm getting the feeling we need to talk about how to organize this whole thing, Faith said, but can we finish clearing the boat first? Or do we let Fly do the rest? She asked with a feral grin. Please no, Brado said. There, Steve said, cocking his head. The reason you're willing to share the boat then? Point, Brado said. So let's get finished clearing, Steve said, heading down the corridor. Then we'll figure out how this is gonna work in more detail. Zombies? Zombies. Any Zombies? Toy, away team, Steve said, taking off his respirator. They were running out of filters, which was going to suck pretty soon. It wasn't bad on the deck, but the air was still thick with rot. Away team, toy. Where's the cooper Over. About 50 miles northeast. Ask them to vector here, Steve said. They're supplies, and we need to have a meeting. Roger. Chapter 19 Chris, I swear to God I should have just kept you as a cook, Steve said, wiping up the spaghetti sauce with garlic bread. It's nearly as good as that place in New York, Faith said, then grimaced. Sorry, Chris, but... Nah, Chris said, taking a bite of green beans. I know what you mean about those places in New York. Some of those old guys are wizards, and there's only so much you can do with canned meat. Besides, much of it was Tina. It's great, Tina, Sophia said. Stacy had stayed on the boat after talking with Steve and giving him her proxy. I didn't do much, Tina said shyly. She transferred to the cooper to get away from the toy, which still had too many bad associations. I think I might transfer, Patrick said. He'd been acting as assistant helmsman and deckhand on the toy. Which kind of brings up the subject of this mating, Steve said. The saloon and the cooper had enough room for most of the crowd, and most people were done with dinner. I'd wondered what the agenda was, Chris said, arching an eyebrow. This is Mike Brado. Steve said, gesturing to Mike. He's the only survivor we found on the Victoria. Being a professional seaman, he's been a real help with figuring out how to board without killing ourselves. Hear, hear, Faith said. And in finding our way around the tug, which is full of diesel and packed with stores, by the way. That's good to hear, Chris said. We could use a refuel. And being a professional seaman, he also pointed out that since he was alive, it's not technically salvage. I'm not saying I won't share, Mike said, as heads swiveled towards him. He held up his hands in surrender. I just wonder what I'm going to get out of it, okay? Is that so wrong? People didn't ask what they were going to get out of it when they rescued you, Paula said snappishly. Yes, actually we did, Steve said. What? Paula asked. Well, I knew there was a good chance that it would have fuel, Steve said, and that it might have supplies. There was an, there was an economic reason to clear it. Call it logistic if you want, but there was a thought beyond might there be survivors, which brings up the point. I'm going to go right on clearing as long as it takes, and I've got some ideas about how to clear the land. How? Patrick asked. I mean, that's a lot of bullets. We don't have that many, do we? No, Faith said. We're even getting a little short on shotgun ammo. I said ideas, Steve said. I'm not really willing to talk about what they are right now, because they change based on what we find. But the point is... I think we need to talk about the, the theory of this whole thing. I'm going to go right on clearing and saving people. But how do we make some of the decisions that need to be made? What right really does Mike have to that boat? I'm not saying that he doesn't have rights. I'm saying that, face it, this is not before the plague. There are laws of the sea, but those have changed over the years. Forget the laws. For one thing, there's nobody to enforce them. How do we organize ourselves? Example, I said that if he wanted, I'd try to find him a decent yacht, and he could take as many supplies as he wanted in exchange for the tug. Can we use the tug? Chris asked. That's a lot for a derelict. Does it run? No, Steve said. We need to tow it to Bermuda, but we'll need Mark's help to do that. But the real point is, do I have the authority to make that promise? That was the thought that crossed my mind after I said it. Chris, when we found the cooper, you were the obvious choice to take it over. You giving him my boat? Chris asked. No, but the point is, I said, Chris, this is your boat. I said it. And I gave Isham that 45 footer. Is that my decision to make? We're sort of following your lead, Steve, Paula said. I don't have a problem with that. Um, Patrick said raising his hand. I've sort of been thinking about that. Go, Steve said. You said you were a history professor, Patrick said. One of the groups I was thinking about is the Italian companieres. Okay, not a reference I'd expected, Steve said with a laugh. Companieries, Chris said, blinking. What? Simply put, they were mercenary bands during the long wars in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Italy, Steve said. They're where we get the word bravo, which is what they were called individually. It just means the courageous ones. They basically fought for shares and elected their leaders rather than having them appointed or fighting for lords directly. Ronan, Paula said. Ronan were radically different, Patrick said. They're better known and there are some similarities, Steve said. The big difference being that companieres came from multiple backgrounds whereas Ronin were samurai that lost their lords and had no one to be loyal to afterwards. So you're saying we should vote? I think, Patrick's face worked. I don't explain stuff very well sometimes, but companieres were one of the bases of the Star Trek universe system. We're all over the map here, Paula said, sighing exasperatedly. The companieres were sort of share and share alike, Patrick said which is how the Federation was based. You mean the stupid liberal we don't have money bullshit, Faith said. It wasn't stupid, Patrick said, shaking his head. They had so many resources that trade in terms of money was left behind. Cory Doctorow explained it better in, Stop, Steve said. You have already done two digressions. I used to think the Star Trek thing was an example of Roddenberry's liberal side as well but once I got my head around the economics, it made sense. It does, Faith said. I won't say it wasn't pro-communism political speech disguised, Steve said, but in the Federation, anything was available at the touch of a button. There weren't any basic resource restrictions. If you don't want to work, you don't have to. On the other hand, there was no economic drive to be, say, a starship captain. You did it because you could. And you wanted to. The question I've always had is why there was a restriction on how many starships a group like that had. Why couldn't anybody have a starship if there were exactly no resource restrictions? But that's beside the point. And I think Patrick's point is that as we get better at clearance, resource restrictions aren't going to be an issue after a while. Patrick? Right, Patrick said, pointing. That, what you said. In Starfleet, you didn't want to get promoted for the stuff. You wanted to get promoted to run stuff, to be a Starfleet captain, not for the money. About all you got in terms of stuff was a bigger cabin. How did they do promotions? Sophia asked. Um, Patrick said. Through Starfleet based on presumed merit, Steve said. Which doesn't help us. And it's more than promotions, although that's part of it. But on that point- When we find the next boat that's usable, assuming we don't have the question of legitimate salvage, who gets it and who decides? You do, Chris said. Really? Steve said. Because the next person I'd give a boat to is Sophia. What? Sophia said, her eyes wide. Uh, Chris said, frowning. Sophia? Faith said angrily. She has more boat handling experience than anyone else we have, Steve said ticking off his points on his fingers. She's engaged in the program. She's not only a good helmsman, but she understands the logistics side. She's diligent, and people like her. She gets things done. Oh, I choose the crew carefully, but those are my points. Okay, Chris said, his brow furrowing. She's kind of young. Yeah, Faith said, and, and. Faith, you don't even like driving when it's your watch. Steve said. Yeah, but... She said, frowning. You want to do the paperwork? Steve asked. Figure out the fuel use? Try to figure out which EPIRB to do next? Well, no, but... Faith said. Damn it! How about me? Paula asked, cocking her head. There are other potential choices, Steve said, but the best choice, in my opinion, is Sophia. Actually, if he wanted it and agreed to fully join the program, I'd now say Mike. Uh, I don't want to clear boats, Mike said, holding up his hands. Sophia hasn't cleared an actual powered boat since we started, Steve said. My point is, Chris, you said I get to decide. Should I? I'm not saying I shouldn't. I think for now that's the way to go. But what's my authority? What's it based on? Saving people? Saving people? That's a pretty good basis, Paula said. Why don't we put it to a vote? Because if we'd put it to a vote at a certain point when Isham was on board, I might have lost, Steve said. So you want to stack the deck, Chris said. Not stack the deck, Steve said. But who we get off of boats is a crapshoot. Do we automatically give them voting rights? How often do we have elections? You want a charter, Patrick said. Like I said... Compañeres, and I was serious. There's no Starfleet, Patrick, Paula said. There wasn't with the Compañeres, Patrick said. I think, okay, pirates then. Oh, great choice, Faith said, rolling her eyes. We're not pirates. When pirates captured a ship, they had to decide who got it, Patrick said. And they were freebooters. They worked for shares. The shares were based on... Actually, I'm not sure what the shares were based on, but they voted on the basis of their shares. Okay, now you're talking my language, Mike said. He'd been looking puzzled through the whole exchange. Go, Steve said. Lots of boats, tugs, fishing boats, are share boats, Bredo said. When you make money off something like salvage, part of it goes to the cost, like the food, fuel, some for maintenance. Then the profits split between the owner and the crew. Sometimes it's not a direct split, but it's pretty close. Then it's broken up. The captain gets part of the share, then the other bosses, then the crew. Usually it's the captain gets 20, 30%, the other senior guys, deck boss and engineer usually, share another 20, and the hand share out the rest. Newbies don't get a share, just straight rate. To get to be share hands, they have to be voted on by the crew. You're talking about deadliest catch, Faith asked. That's how they do their shares, Bredo said, nodding. And when you have something that's a question, that the crew gets rights on having a say, they vote their shares. Freebooters, Chris said, rubbing his beard. Hey, I always sort of wanted to be a pirate. What about larger decisions, Steve said. No, back to the point. Is that the way that we should organize ourselves? Does it make sense? For this level, Paula said. But your point about larger is valid. We're planning on being bigger, right? And what about salvage? Chris said. Mike, I get the point that the Victoria isn't legal salvage, but we need those supplies. I'll share, man, Mike said. I'll even help. But I really don't want to go around clearing boats. Not my thing especially after sitting in that fucking hole listening to the zombies howl for months. 50%, Steve said. When we clear a boat, any survivors get 50% of the materials the boat is carrying for trade, crew or passengers. If you are on the boat, you get 50% of the material. The flotilla gets the other 50%. And the boat, unless it's turned over to one of the survivors for reasons determined by, well, we'll get to that. Of that, some amount goes to the boat that cleared it, some to the boat that found it, if it's not the clearance boat. The rest goes to support the overall flotilla. I can go 50%, Mike said, grimacing. Do I keep the boat? Mike, we're probably going to be using it for storage, Steve said, until we get something better. You're not gonna go hungry again. You okay with that, being the base station? And your share is 50% of the materials to trade if you want I can do that, Mike said, nodding Not sure what I'll trade Okay First, do we have a second that boats organise on the basis of shares? Second, Paul said Wait, are we voting on a shares basis? Not yet, Steve said We have a second Objections? It's out of order, Chris said But before we vote, what are the shares? Figure that out after we determine if we're going to do it on a shares basis.
1: That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a plie of planetary proportions, and a galactic doci do of good cheer and thanks to Jody Lynn Nye, author of Rhythm of the Imperium. Happy holidays, and please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands. Based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa. Set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama.